Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We know we're in a very tough financial spot right now, an economic crisis. Is it as bad as what we saw in 2008 or before that, perhaps in 1990? Well, that's what a new report from Deloitte has been trying to find out. They kind of pulled from those recessions in 1990 and 2008 to take a look at what the lasting impact of this pandemic will be on the people who have been hit the hardest. So let's find out what they found out. Matt LaBerge joins us now, Senior Manager of Economic Advisory at Deloitte Canada. Matt, thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Good morning. So is it, was there a comparison between these three recessions? And if, is there anything similar between the three of them? Well, I, I think what's important to say right, right at the start is that it's a combination of the isolation from dependence and the economic recession that is hitting uh, households and people really hard from a, a human impact perspective, especially mental health. Okay, so this one is unique in that way. But what about the economic impacts? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, we've seen a, a sharp drop in, in, in employment earlier this spring. It seems to be to be recovering, but for sure we'll be we'll be uh, sensing the, the economic impact and, and the subsequent human impact um, uh, of this situation for several months, if not years. Um, you know, we, we do see a recovery uh, towards the, the end of this year, early next, but but it, it will take some time to to go back to uh, to where we were before the pandemic. So how long did recovery take in those other two recessions? Uh, when you look at the long-term employment, because that's what we really looked at in the, in the report, and that's, what, uh, uh, that's what's the real impact when it comes to human impact uh, in terms of educational outcomes and mental health, for example. Um, you, you, you see that the, the long-term unemployment is increasing during the recessionary period, but it, 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 is, it remains sustained for quite a long time after. Um, it, it can go up to, to two years, what is what we found uh, in the report. And, and during the, 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 that period, people are most at risk of, of low income, of financial stress, and combined with the, the current situation, with the uncertainty, uncertainty around the pandemic, it, it has a strong impact on, on mental health. Uh, right. You've also made some recommendations for governments in there and what they should do. What are those recommendations? But we need to prepare. We know that, you know, uh, health systems may be uh, seeing increased volume of people uh, consulting for, for stress and, and anxiety diagnosis. So they, we need to be able to use the, the, the government networks such as schools and daycare to identify kids that are at risk, but also their whole family ecosystem. Because when, when a kid goes to, to school or daycare, they have access to the whole family and can identify those that were more, most at risk and refer them to the right resources. Right. Now, the 2008 recession, when you looked at it, it also showed that there was an increase in things like drug abuse and depression. Do we expect a similar kind of fallout in this time around? So this is, yeah, this is all what we, we label as human impact. 
Unfortunately, this is still a very recent uh, situation. We don't have the data to assess it for the current period, but typically, yes, you can, you can see some, uh, some uh, pickup in uh, substance abuse, um, you know, uh, so some type of crimes more related to, uh, to, uh, to goods um, and, and other uh, impact on educational outcomes, which, which we observed in the past, on top of, of the overall mental health situation. Right. So you said, though, you, it, you when you look at the trajectory of recovery, what does that look like? Are we talking next year, the year after? Will there be lingering impacts? Well, it all depends on how the situation unfolds, really. Um, you know, um, there, there are a number of factors to take into account, one of which is how will the fall go? Um, right now, we're seeing some kind of, of a recovery over the recent weeks, and uh, the, the current forecast is for recovery over the coming months and probably towards mid next year. Now, is that for Canada or are you looking at kind of worldwide economic recovery? Well, this is for Canada. Worldwide, it will really depend, right? Not all countries are at the same point in the pandemic. So some are still very early on uh, and, and some don't have the same systems as, as we have to, to face it in terms of, uh, of, of public health, in terms of, of economic support. Mm-hmm. And so in some sense, you know, um, we're, we're fortunate to have access to, to those supports. In Canada. So does that put Canada, does, does it give us like some advantages perhaps? Well, I mean, there's no winning situation, frankly, on this. I think, you know, this is a tough situation for a lot of people and a lot of Canadians. Now, you know, I think there's been some responses from from the whole of the country, be it government or employers, stepping up and providing some flexibility. I think that, that that's well warranted. And it, it makes it relatively more uh, more uh, um, straightforward to cope with, but it, it's a challenging situation for sure. All right, we'll see what happens. Matt, thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time as well. That is Matt LaBerge. She's a senior manager of economic advisory at Deloitte Canada. They took a look at the recessions of 1990 and 2008, compared it to what we see going on here in 2020, to try to figure out the lasting impact of the pandemic. And the big concerns clearly are those health concerns, people suffering mental health issues related to the pandemic. They saw a bit of this, they said, after 2008, when they did see an uptick, a pretty significant one in drug abuse and depression as a result of people uh, suffering through the 2008 recession. And they feel that if that's not looked after this time around, because we know that's a huge factor for people now uh, as well, that that will be one of the lasting impacts of this economic downturn as well. If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com. Let's have a little chat with Nikki Reitmeyer this morning, who joins us now. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simmy. How are you? I'm doing well. I think, okay, I had one of those sleeps last night where you somehow sleep a little bit wrong and you wake up and your back is killing you. You don't know what you did or what happened in the night. You know, you were fighting ninjas in your sleep or something (laughs) like that. And you wake up and your back is all stiff and sore. I had one of those sleeps last night, which is pretty rare for me. But yeah, I'm I'm drinking a coffee and trying to get through it. You need a new mattress. That's what you need. I... Yeah, you know what? It's I got I got a new mattress a couple of years back, and I, I loved it. But I think I moved my bed recently, and I didn't quite maybe push the mattress back up onto the bed properly. So I think there's now sort of a like a low point. Yeah. in the mattress. Yeah, I got a few things. I, I got a new <laughs> I got a new mattress a couple months ago, and it has oh. been a game changer. Are you a soft mattress or like I a thought I was? Soft? Apparently, I'm not. 
Oh. Jill Bennett got me started on this. Jill Bennett went mattress shopping and she started talking about it. And I thought, you know what? I could use a new mattress too. Mine was like pretty old and it was saggy in the middle. And so uh, she and I both bought mattresses. Hers was extra firm or firm, I think. And she said, you should try it. And so I went and checked out the firm ones. I also got one. Game changer. Changed my life. I do not wake up with like sore neck, shoulders, back anymore at all. Amazing. Okay, okay. I'm going to be doing a little online shopping later. I think you should. <laughs> anyway, I See digress. See what my options are. <laughs> I digress because what I wanted to talk about today was an experience that my family and I had last night. So we went out for dinner mm-hmm. and we hadn't been out for dinner for a long time, but we had everybody together in the same place all at once, you know, for once. So we thought, let's go out for dinner. Went to a, a well-known local restaurant chain for dinner. Okay. Okay. And lovely dinner. Great time. Everything was wonderful. But as we were getting up to leave, I thought, oh, wait a minute, they didn't take our name and information when we got here, which they're supposed to for contact tracing purposes. And so I I said to the lady on the way out, "Um, excuse me, are you supposed to be taking people's name and numbers for information? She said, oh, yeah, we do. And I said, well, no, because you never took ours. And she said, oh, we must have. And I said, no, I don't think you did. So she went over to the computer and she pressed the table that we were sitting at and then up pops the window that, you know, they're supposed to put all the information in and it's blank. So she says, oh, I'm so sorry. She says, I'll I'll take that. She goes, I'm so sorry about that. And I said, well, can you take it now? Because I would like to make sure that you have my info in case there's a problem. She said, oh, absolutely. So she puts it all in there and she apologized profusely. But then I left thinking, well, how often does that happen? And so when I mentioned it to a few people, the same thing happened to our producer, Greg Schott, who went to a restaurant also yesterday, same thing they didn't take his contact tracing information either. So now I'm starting to wonder, how often do you think this happens? That's really interesting. I'm just trying to think back on restaurant experiences that I've had. I certainly always remember when it does happen, but have I experienced it not happening? I I honestly don't know. You're right, though. This is one of the measures that restaurants are supposed to follow. It was in the initial order from the provincial health officer, and it was also in the revised one that came out July 23rd. So, you know, if anybody has any questions as to whether or not restaurants are supposed to be doing this, it literally says, you know, section number 25, if in the order of course of business, you collect information from patrons for the purpose of making reservations or seating patrons, you must collect first and last name and telephone number or email address of at least one member of every party uh, of patrons. Yeah. And you may collect this information from other members of a party, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So this is supposed to be one of the things that restaurants are doing every single place you go. But obviously it sounds like from your experience and the experience of others, not everyone is doing this. It was, I was disappointed because it was quite clear they were doing everything else. Right? Like they had the plexiglass uh, in okay. between tables. They had really spaced the tables out. They were clearly seated. Well, we were seated in a section and we went early because like, I eat early. Um, and so we were there at like five o'clock. So we, there wasn't anybody around us, but you could tell they were obviously making that effort to make sure that people were kind of spaced apart. The server was wearing a mask. Like all of the other things were followed. And I just thought, oh, it's disappointing that they didn't do this. And then when I hear a second story, I do have to wonder if restaurants are abiding. I hope they are, because as you just pointed out, they are required to do this. Now, would you say something, Nikki? This was the other argument we were having as well, because producer Greg (laughs) didn't want to say anything. 
in my party, I was being, my, my husband was telling me, oh, don't say anything. It's okay. Just leave it. They must've just forgotten. And I said, no, no, like this is not a, an awkward thing. I want them to know who I am in case there's a COVID-19 outbreak here. I want them to call me and tell me if they need to. So would you say something? I respect and appreciate so much that you said something. I, however, am extremely <laughs> passive aggressive. And I, I probably wouldn't say something just knowing myself. I would want to say something. I probably wouldn't, though, just because, you know, I would I would be like your husband. Oh, you know, it's going to be awkward. Oh, I don't want to cause a scene. I don't want to say anything. What if they spit in my food? I don't want to say anything. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I tried to make it like as nice as possible because my point was, please take my information. It wasn't, hey, you guys aren't doing what you're supposed to you be doing. You didn't do this. No, I, yeah. I, I didn't want to say that. What I said was, could you please take my info just in case you need it, which I thought was a better way of approaching it. Now, on the other side of this, I'm just thinking back to when I went out Friday night, they took our information of, you know, on a, on a form that they had just by hand, they wrote it down. They put down the clipboard that had other people's contact information and this, the host walked away, except all of this was happening on the patio outside where Anybody could have seen that information, you know, snapped a photo of it, just grab the clipboard and run away. And I thought, okay, here is a, here's another issue with the contact tracing information that people are taking where, you know, you're leaving it exposed to, you know, anybody who could come right. by and, and take a look at this. So yeah, you know, I think there's definitely a lot of questions being raised about, about this contact tracing information, either, you know, are they taking it or if they do take it, are they handling it and protecting it? But if they take your name and number and they put it on that clipboard, I mean, that you could do that for a table. Do you know what I mean? Like that could be any time. That's not, not just contact tracing. You could line up for Sunday brunch and they would take your name and number and perhaps leave that clipboard sitting there. Mm, that's Yeah, I mean, I guess if we think back to, you know, the pre-pandemic days, if you wanted to leave, you know, you show up to a busy restaurant and they say, look, we can't fit you in right now, yes. but can we grab your name and number and, they and do we'll it all the time. call you in 20 minutes? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, it proves, I think, to your point, that restaurants are surely equipped to do this and servers have experience in doing this. So when it comes to not taking that information now, you know, why is there such inconsistencies. This is what I'm wondering too. So I'm going to ask people about this. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Amy. What has been your experience at a restaurant? Have they taken your information as they are required to do uh, just in case they need to contact you if there is a case of COVID-19 there? Now, they didn't when I went there. Uh, otherwise, they were following all the rules. It was very clear. And so I, wa I wanted them to have my information just in case. It was not a matter of me kind of wagging my finger saying, you didn't take my information. No, it was not at all. I thought, no, no, I need you to have my information. I don't want to read about a problem here, you know, a couple weeks from now. So we heard at the end of last week that there are some serious problems with some massive cost overruns at the Site C construction project in the Peace River region. A lot of that is being blamed on the pandemic. However, they're also facing some structural issues. They're concerned about the ground underneath, uh, particularly the generating area, and they're thinking it might be unstable. It's going to cost a lot of money to fix that. And my question with that was, how did they not know this before they started construction? That's what we wanted to talk about. Eric Eberhardt is with us. He's the director of the Geological Engineering Program at UBC. Eric, thank you very much for being here. Good morning. Can you give me an idea of when a, a huge construction project is undertaken? Do they not? Is it not normal to do an examination of the geological structure underneath what's going to be built? 
Yes, uh, you know, they, they do a detailed investigation through um, a number of, of means of observing the ground, but a lot of it is limited to uh, small observations through borehole drilling, and so the samples that they can build up, uh, pull up from depth. Uh, so they, they've been investigating the Site C uh, location for, you know, decades, um, you know, even before the, this, the project was uh, given the go-ahead. Right, so how can there be surprises this far along? Does that happen in projects? Uh, you know, it, it's very common. It's it's uh, just the nature of the uncertainty when they go forward on these projects. And I think the way I would compare it is uh, if we think about uh, constructing a large building, uh, when we construct a large building, it's all observable. Um, it's materials that we use. It, they're you know they're they're materials that we we make the glass, the steel, the concrete, um, and so everything is 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 very well defined. When we're dealing with any projects that involve the subsurface, what we see is immediately what's on the surface. But what is, what's immediately on the surface is just the soil cover. What's underneath it is is the geology, is the rock. And that can change from, you know, standing in one location and walking over 10 meters. The geology can change quite drastically. So when you're doing the investigation, you know, you're, you're blind to what is in the subsurface. And, and that's what, the you know, they, they do with the drilling. They'll drill mm-hmm. down, bring up a sample understand the geology from that, drill another location, but you can only drill so many of those holes and still there's still a lot of uncertainty and unknowns with the subsurface. So it's that do you, you don't know how it's going to compress until you're starting to put the heavy stuff on there? So, you know, the investigation and what you're learning about the subsurface evolves with the project. And so you start, you know, you know what you know from the geology, from what you do know, and, and you design around that and you build into your design the means to be able to adapt that as you as you go through construction and you're learning more, um, you're able to either confirm what your initial uh, understanding was uh, or you have to quickly adapt to it and, and update. And, and this is extremely common in, in any type of mm-hmm. project that involves the underground, whether it's building a hydroelectric dam or it's excavating um, a tunnel, as, as we will be for the Broadway tunnels uh, in here in Vancouver for the subway. Um, or, or, or in designing a mine, any of the mines that we have in, in the province undergo the same uncertainty when they go into construction and they have to adapt as they dig into the geology and they, they get to see it, they're able to confirm uh, or it refutes what they, they thought was right. there and they have to then design for that. Fascinating. Eric, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. That's Eric Eberhardt, Director of the Geological Engineering Program at UBC, talking about how common it is for geological structure problems to pop up uh, when you're far along on these big projects. And of course, up at Site C, there is nothing bigger than what they're building there. And they also now have big geological structure um, problems there that they are going to be dealing with. Let's talk about traveling, in particular, getting on board an airplane. For so many people, and I feel this, uh, it's just not worth it right now. The concerns that you might have, I mean, every day it seems like they are adding more flights to the BC Centre for Disease. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.
control watch list of people who potentially may have been exposed to COVID-19 while on an airplane. But one airline thinks they have got a way to combat that. To talk more about this, we're joined now with our Nikki Wrightmeyer. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, you've heard of Emirate Airlines before, right? I mean, this airline, yeah, they're always ranked like the nicest airline in the world to fly. Luxurious, I believe is the word. Absolutely. And they have a new initiative that they think will lure some travelers. Like many airlines, of course, they've been struggling as well, even despite the fact that they're this well-known luxury airline. They have a new plan that they think is going to instill confidence in travelers, make people want to travel with them. I think it's going to do the exact opposite, actually. (laughs) However, they're offering a new insurance plan, which as soon as you buy a ticket, automatically you buy into this insurance policy. So they're willing to cover $236,000 Canadian for your medical expenses should you get sick with COVID-19 while traveling with them. They're willing to pay $150 Canadian for 14 days so you can cover any quarantine costs that may be associated with you traveling with them. And this is the part that I think doesn't instill confidence. They're also willing to pay $2,300 Canadian for your funeral should you die from COVID-19 as a result of traveling with them. Okay, well, a couple things there. One, obviously, ew, why would they do that? But two, (laughs) they clearly haven't priced a funeral lately because $2,300 is a drop in the bucket going towards a funeral. Yeah, I'm not too sure. I mean, it certainly wouldn't be the nicest funeral. I don't think that would even cover the catering costs for most funerals these days. Yeah. However, they'll still kick you that 2300 bucks. I'm not sure how you go about claiming it necessarily. Yeah. Uh, this is <laughs> weird. This would not Isn't, entice yeah. me to fly Emirates. Be like, you know, we should fly Emirates because if something happens, they will pay for our funeral. I know. This is what I thought was so funny is they're doing it because they want travelers to feel more confident flying with them. But when you throw in the, oh, yeah, just in case anything goes wrong, we'll even cover the cost of your funeral. (laughs) That doesn't exactly make you want to fly with them. It reminds you of the possible risk of flying with them or with any other airline right now. I think that is so true. But I mean, airlines, they're kind of grasping at straws here to get people on board. Yeah, they really are. And, you know, the other day I was talking to Claire Newell from Travel Best Bets. Of course, we all know Claire. Yes. And she was saying right now, you know, regardless of of what Emirates is doing, they're not the only ones. You have so many airlines that are offering these really amazing deals right now to tempt travelers. The one thing is, is that the people around me who know me are actually taking advantage of some of the deals that are out there right now because they are flexible. You are not left holding the bag if there's another spike. Um, you, you, there's really low deposits. Deposits are sitting at around 130, 159. They're normally 300, 400, $500. Jeez. And you, you can get out of these trips the second the ban is lifted. You're not going to have the deals that you have in place. See, I do wonder about that now. It's so flexible. Even if you book a flight uh, for anywhere, they tell you, oh, yeah, you get a free change on this one. And you think, boy, things changed really quickly for the airline industry. Yeah, it's amazing how flexible the airlines become very quickly when this whole COVID-19 pandemic hit. The customer service, I think, greatly improved for a lot of the airlines who became a little bit desperate. Suddenly they're offering perks that they said they couldn't possibly offer before. Uh, Yeah, I'm not sure if any of this, though, is tempting enough 
for people to start traveling again. As you heard Claire say, the people in her circle, who are obviously big travelers, they're taking advantage of some of these deals and they're booking because they feel that there's a sense of security. You know, they can they can book a flight if it gets canceled. You know, they feel confident that they'll be able to get their money back because of these deals that the airlines are offering. But, you know, even with that, that Emirates deal, and as much as, you know, uh, it would be a luxury to fly with Emirates, yeah, I don't know. I, I still am not feeling totally confident about flying and I love to travel, but I you just do. don't feel comfortable right now, especially going somewhere international on an airplane. Well, what about the um, Hawaii deal, right? We heard that starting September 1st, Canadian travelers to Hawaii, uh, as long as they have had a negative COVID test within 72 hours of boarding the flight, are welcome to go to Hawaii and they don't have to quarantine when they get there. Is that enough to make you travel? Mm, not to the United States of America. I know <laughs> that Hawaii has been been better with with the cases compared to to the rest of America. Ah, however, the the temptation for me just isn't quite strong enough yet to want to get on an airplane. I mean, I guess on the bright side, you know, if you were to travel there, you wouldn't have to sit in a hotel room for fourteen days. You know, looking out your window at the beach where you wish yeah. you were, you can prove, you know, with that test that you don't have COVID nineteen. Uh, you tested negative for it, and they'll let you, you know, enjoy enjoy the state of Hawaii. When you come back to Canada, though you still have to do the 14-day quarantine. So right. you're still That's stuck the rub. for two weeks. I had people yeah, who absolutely. emailed me about this and said, you know what, that makes it not worth it. So I still, so you're still coming back. So even if you go for two weeks and you come back, you're quarantining for two weeks, well, there's a month right there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you work from home, okay, maybe it's a little bit easier. Maybe it's a little bit, you know, more doable. Uh, however, if, you know, you have to leave your house for work now, we're talking about a whole other set of issues, which I think is going to continue to deter a lot of people from flying. I don't quite know if the temptation level is high enough yet, but I would be really curious to hear from listeners. 604-331-BUZZ. When you hear about these types of deals, you know, anything on the broad spectrum of deals that we've discussed, is it tempting enough for you to want to get back on an airplane again? Yeah, I guess that's one way to do it. Or you could do something like a, a, more and more airlines are doing this. Alaska Airlines actually just announced it this morning is they want, they're going the safety route and they're saying it's absolutely mandatory for every guest ages two and older to wear a mask or face covering mm. over their nose and mouth. And they said, no exceptions. If a guest is unwilling or unable to wear a mask, not going to get on one of their airplanes. Have you seen some of these crazy videos that have been I circulating know. around the internet right? where there's one person on the airplane and they refuse to wear a mask? I don't know. Maybe they've gotten on board and then they take the mask off or whatever. That because will also get the, you banned, the, by the, the way. Starts halfway that through. will get you banned oh, from Alaska Airlines if you do that. Really? If they you take just the mask that, off yeah. during the flight? Yeah. Wow. They yeah, because these videos are crazy. I mean, you see... Basically, you know, you know, the the passengers on the plane are screaming at this person. The person is screaming at everyone else, and then yeah, they get kicked off the plane. But wow, you can actually get banned for life as well, eh? Yeah. So I guess there's two different approaches that airlines are taking. So there's the Emirates way, which is enticing you with free funerals and paying your insurance <laughs> costs, and then there's the other airline way, which is Alaska is one airline of several that is doing this, and that is the safety route while you're on board the airplane is masks mandatory for everybody. Look. Which one would make you feel more inclined to get on an airplane, do you think? Well, probably the one that keeps me alive. There you go. 
That's what I, I was really want to take advantage of Emirates funeral deal. You know, <laughs> that's what I was thinking too. Well, let's find out what people say. So call our buzz line 604-331-2899. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. Thanks, Nikki. You know, normally at this time of year with the kind of beautiful weather we've been having, so many people would be enjoying something like Bard on the Beach. It has been, in years past, an annual summertime tradition. Of course, it got cancelled earlier this year because of the pandemic. However, it is kind of back in a way. So if you love the performing arts, then you should check out Bard Beyond the Beach. This is a new website. It features lots of great content from the performers that you, of course, come to love from the annual Bard on the Beach event that they do, featuring, of course, Christopher Gaze, the founding artistic director of Bard, who spoke to our Nikki Reitmeyer about this new online initiative. I guess it began with the new branding that we took on from Carter Hale who did our uh, branding, rebranding a couple of years ago, uh, just to show uh, uh, where we are now, not in the tent this summer. We're virtual, like so many others. And uh, we put together what we think is uh, some really compelling and interesting programming for all those people that grieve the loss of uh, so much of the arts, in this case, Bart on the Beach this summer, so they can engage with us. And the content that's available online, it seems to go beyond just Shakespeare's performances. There's even videos up there about the history of Stanley Park. That's right. Uh, one of my colleagues, Max Forsyth, is doing a wonderful uh, art around town. All the uh, oddities and uh, curious things that people never knew. I never knew a lot of them, of the way our city has linked to the Bard or Bards in general, so it's informative and it's fun. It's a nice, easy four or five minutes watch, and you get all this off uh, the Bard on the Beach webpage. I think that's something that's been really interesting about the pandemic is we're not taking some experiences for granted anymore. Maybe that means we're exploring our own backyard a bit more than we did previously, or maybe that means we have a new appreciation for the performing arts. Yes, yes. That's right. And I think also um, people are just missing it uh, so much. Uh, they'll do anything to, uh, to get involved and are yearning for it all to be back. I mean, one, one's heart breaks for the, the art and cultural entities around the world who are trying to uh, hold it together financially as this pandemic is, has taken hold. So it, it's a challenge. But fortunately, uh, we're up for it. Uh, the art will survive. We will survive. It's just going to be a fight and a battle, but uh, nevertheless, it's a battle we shall win. There's one particular quote that you've used for the Bard Beyond the Beach website by William Shakespeare, and that is, hearts remote, yet not asunder. Can you tell me what that means to you? Yeah, so um, we're parted. Our hearts are joined together. Our passion is joined together uh, with all the people that love God, although we're sad, you're sad, uh, that uh, we're apart, we hold hands across this, uh, this gulf, and we won't forget you, and uh, we very much hope that uh, you won't forget us. One more question for you before I let you go. How are you doing? How is Christopher Gaze? Well, that's very kind of you to ask. I- you know, I'm fine. It's, uh, 
I think for the first three months or so of it all, I was, I guess you could use the word uh, frustrated or even, I'm not an angry person, but I think there was a semblance of that because for over three decades I've been performing or produce, producing uh, in Vanier on, on English Bay and now uh, not. And so I, I've settled into it now, though, because we have this virtual program, which we're very excited about. And there's a lot more than that. It's both educational, it's entertaining, it's informative. It's everything we can do with engage with those that love us. So uh, I'm all right. I'm, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm as fine as you are. We're all frustrated. We wish that life could be as it was, but it's not. So we take a deep breath and go on. Ah, well, thank you so much. Wishing you the absolute best, and I look forward to continuing to check Bard Beyond the Beach to see what new content appears online. Thank you so much. Just go to our webpage. You can find out all about it. But thanks for your interest, and hello to uh, all the Bard lovers, uh, both here and uh, hither and beyond. Hither and beyond. Of course, that was Christopher Gaze, the founding artistic director of Bard on the Beach. So if you are missing the content that you would normally get from Bard, they have a little something for you. It's called Bard Beyond the Beach, and you can check that out online. They've got all sorts of great content for you to look at there. It's been a tough six months for so many industries, but in particular, people who love to enjoy live music. It's been devastating, right? Most live concerts canceled, artists, venues just struggling to survive at this point. Well, the Mary Winspear Centre in Sydney over on Vancouver Island is trying to get creative. They're hoping that their approach could potentially serve as a roadmap for other venues in the same position. They're actually bringing back some live entertainment. We're going to find out how they are doing that. So Executive Director Brad Edgett joins us now for more on this. Good morning, Brad. Good morning. So tell me a bit about what you're doing. How do you think you can pull this off? (laughs) Well, uh, it's been a lot of work over the last couple of months to see if there is a way that we could do it, working with all of the artists, all of the agents, uh, working with ActSafe, with WorkSafe as well, and of course following the guidelines of the Provincial Health Authority. We're in a fortunate situation where we have a a large convertible space, a large hall space that we call the Boating Hall, which is 8,000 square feet. And so we're able to follow uh, the Provincial Health Guidelines with providing a minimum of two-meter space between all all the tables, uh, the artists, uh, all my technicians. And so I've also been working with Decorate Victoria uh, to create an intimate uh, looking space in an 8,000 square foot hall. Yeah. And you've only got 50 people in there. It almost seems cavernous. But we've been able to close it off with, uh, with being able to put some decorations in there. We built a specific stage for the artists, um, some ceiling treatments, and you know, tried to make it a really beautiful, intimate space. We had our first show on July 16th through 19th with uh, country artist Aaron Perchette. And the feedback was fantastic. You know, the artists had a wonderful time. Uh, all the patrons had a, a very good time. And they were all safe. Right. And at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. But how do you make it financially worthwhile, Brad, to have 50 people in there? Like, what do you have to charge for a ticket? So the tickets actually have been uh, very close to what we would normally charge for a single show. Um, but that's been work on our part, work on the agent's part, and work on the artist's part. We've all had to um, bend our fees a little bit and, and, and try to pull this off. But at the end of the day, you know, we've been able to take advantage of some of the, uh, the government programs. And so I'm happy to pass some of that savings on to our patrons and the artists as well. 
and none of us are doing much right now anyway. So, um, you know, it, the artists are, are receiving it very well because they're, they're getting paid as well. So do you see this continuing as you move forward? Well, we right now I have uh, 10 artists that have agreed to, to do this series at, at four nights. So that's 40 shows uh, from now until mid-November. Uh, and I'm working with a couple of artists right now to see if I can put something together for, for Christmas time. So, you know, really, we, we started July 16, and if we can go till the middle of December, uh, you know, it'll, it'll be close to 50 nights that the, the uh, center will be in operation. Okay, so that's something then. So what is your advice then to other venues like yours uh, to who might be thinking of a way to do this? Well, my uh, theater manager, Philip Sutton, sits on the BCTC uh, task force for reopening due to COVID, and we've been really open about trying to share what works and what doesn't in this scenario because i think from for, for all of us the arts and culture is such a huge part of uh you know our way of life but also there's a, a huge social economic benefit with with arts and culture for mental health and and things like that so you know it's in our interest uh you know from a provincial standpoint to to educate and help and see if we can mm-hmm. uh, be creative and open other venues all right so what is your website then brad in case people are like i want to go to one of these shows yeah, you're welcome to, to come visit us at uh, www.marywinspear.ca. Um, and uh, you'll, you'll see the list of lineup that we have. Okay, we'll check it out. Brad, thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. That's Brad Edgett. He's the executive director of the Mary Winspear Center. It's in Sydney on Vancouver Island. They think they have cracked this. They think for now they've found a way to host some shows, max 50 people, uh, but they have found a way to make it seem more intimate, to make it worthwhile for the artists and for the for the patrons who are there. And they said they've got a list of shows, something like 40, 50 shows between now and the beginning of December of different artists who are pitching in on this. So you know what? Check out their website. Maybe it's worth the trip over to the island to check out what it is that they've got there. And hey, it's a night out, right? And a lot of people would like a night out. We know we're in a very tough financial spot right now, an economic crisis. Is it as bad as what we saw in 2008 or before that, perhaps in 1990? Well, that's what a new report from Deloitte has been trying to find out. They kind of pulled from those recessions in 1990 and 2008 to take a look at what the lasting impact of this pandemic will be on the people who have been hit the hardest. So let's find out what they found out. Matt LaBerge joins us now, Senior Manager of Economic Advisory at Deloitte Canada. Matt, thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Good morning. So is it, was there a comparison between these three recessions? And if, is there anything similar between the three of them? Well, I, I think what's important to say right, right at the start is that it's a combination of the isolation from the pandemic and the economic recession that is hitting uh, households and people really hard from a, a human impact perspective, especially mental health. Okay, so this one is unique in that way. But what about the economic impacts? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, we've seen a, a sharp drop in, in, in employment earlier this spring. It seems to be to be recovering, but for sure we'll be, we'll be uh, sensing the, the economic impact and the subsequent human impact um, uh, of this situation for several months, if not years. Um, you know, we, we do see a recovery uh, towards the, the end of this year, early next, but, but it, it will take some time to, to go back to, uh, to where we were before the pandemic. So how long did recovery take in those other two recessions? Uh, when you look at the long-term employment, because that's what we really looked at in the, in the report, and that's, what, uh, uh, that's what's the real impact when it comes to human impact uh, in terms of educational outcomes and mental health, for example. 
Um, you, you, you see that the, the long-term unemployment is increasing during the recessionary period, but it, 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 is, it remains sustained for quite a long time after. Um, it, it can go up to, to two years, what is what we found uh, in the report. And, and during the, 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 that period, people are most at risk of low income, of financial stress, and combined with the, the current situation, with the uncertainty, uncertainty around the pandemic, it, it has a strong impact on, on mental health. Right. You've also made some recommendations for governments in there and what they should do. What are those recommendations? Well, we need to prepare. We know that, you know, uh, health systems may be uh, seeing increased volume of people uh, consulting for, for stress and, and anxiety diagnosis. So they, we need to be able to use the, the government networks such as schools and daycare to identify kids that are at risk, but also their whole family ecosystem. Because when, when a kid goes to, to school or daycare, they have access to the whole family and can identify those that were more, most at risk and refer them to the right resources. Right. Now, the 2008 recession, when you looked at it, it also showed that there was an increase in things like drug abuse and depression. Do we expect a similar kind of fallout in this time around? So this is, yeah, this is all what we, we label as human impact. Unfortunately, this is still a very recent uh, situation. We don't have the data to assess it for the current period. But typically, yes, you can, you can see some, uh, some uh, pickup in uh, substance abuse, um, you know, uh, so some type of crimes more related to, uh, to, uh, good, to goods um, and, and other uh, impact on educational outcomes, which, which we observed in the past, on top of, of the overall mental health situation. Right. So you said, though, you, it, you when you look at the trajectory of recovery, what does that look like? Are we talking next year, the year after? Will there be lingering impacts? Well, it all depends on how the situation unfolds, really. Um, you know, um, there, there are a number of factors to take into account, one of which is how will the fall go? Um, right now, we're seeing some kind of, of a recovery over the recent weeks, and uh, the, the current forecast is for a recovery over the coming months and probably towards next year. Now, is that for Canada, or are you looking at kind of worldwide economic recovery? Well, this is for Canada. Worldwide, it will really depend, right? Not all countries are at the same point in the pandemic. So some are still very early on. Uh, and some don't have the same systems as, as we have to, to face it in terms of, uh, of, of public health, in terms of, of economic support. Mm-hmm. And so in some sense, you know, um, we're, we're fortunate to have access to, to those supports in Canada. So does that put Canada, does, does it give us like some advantages perhaps? Well, I mean, there's no winning situation, frankly, on this. I think, you know, this is a tough situation for a lot of people and a lot of Canadians. Now, you know, uh, I think there's been some responses from from, uh, from the, the whole of the country, be it government or, or employers, stepping up and, and providing some flexibility. I think that, that that's well warranted, and it, it makes it relatively more uh, more uh, um, straightforward to cope with. But it, it's a challenging situation for sure. All right, we'll see what happens, Matt. Thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time as well. That is Matt LaBerge. She's a senior manager of economic advisory at Deloitte Canada. They took a look at the recessions of 1990, 
and 2008 compared it to what we see going on here in 2020 to try to figure out the lasting impact of the pandemic. And the big concerns clearly are those health concerns, people suffering mental health issues related to the pandemic. They saw a bit of this, they said, after 2008 when they did see an uptick, a pretty significant one in drug abuse and depression as a result of people uh, suffering through the 2008 recession. And they feel that if that's not looked after, this time around, because we know that's a huge factor for people now uh, as well, that that will be one of the lasting impacts of this economic downturn as well. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's have a little chat with Nikki Reitmeyer this morning, who joins us now. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm doing well. I think, okay, I had one of those sleeps last night where you somehow sleep a little bit wrong and you wake up and your back is killing you. You don't know what you did or what happened in the night. You know, you were fighting ninjas in your sleep or something (laughs) like that. And you wake up and your back is all stiff and sore. I had one of those sleeps last night, which is pretty rare for me. But yeah, I'm, I'm drinking a coffee and trying to get through it. You need a new mattress. That's what you need. I... Yeah, you know what? It's I got I got a new mattress a couple years back, and I, I loved it. But I think I moved my bed recently, and I didn't quite maybe push the mattress back up onto the bed properly. So I think there's now sort of a like a low point. Yeah. in the mattress. Yeah, I, I got a few things. I got a new ma- I got a new mattress a couple months ago, and it has oh. been a game changer. Are you a soft mattress or like I a thought I was. Soft? Apparently, I'm not. Oh, Jill Bennett got me started on this. Jill Bennett went mattress shopping and she started talking about it. And I thought, you know what? I could use a new mattress too. Mine was like pretty old and it was saggy in the middle. And so uh, she and I both bought mattresses. Hers was extra firm or firm, I think. And she said, you should try it. And so I went and checked out the firm ones. I also got one game changer, changed my life. I do not wake up with like sore neck, shoulders, back anymore at all. Amazing. Okay, okay. I'm going to be doing a little online shopping later. I think you should. <laughs> anyway, I <laughs> See digress. What my options are. Yeah. I digress because what I wanted to talk about today was an experience that my family and I had last night. So we went out for dinner. Mm-hmm. And we hadn't been out for dinner for a long time, but we had everybody together in the same place all at once, you know, for once. So we thought, let's go out for dinner. Went to a a well-known local restaurant chain for dinner, okay? Okay. And lovely dinner, great time. Everything was wonderful, but as we were getting up to leave, I thought oh, wait a minute, they didn't take our name and information when we got here, which they're supposed to for contact tracing purposes. And so I I said to the lady on the way out, "Um, excuse me, aren't you supposed to be taking people's name and numbers for information? She said, oh, yeah, we do. And I said, well, no, because you never took ours. And she said, oh, we must have. And I said, no, I don't think you did. So she went over to the computer and she pressed the table that we were sitting at and then up pops the window that, you know, they're supposed to put all the information in and it's blank. So she says, oh, I'm so sorry. She says, I'll I'll take that. She goes, I'm so sorry about that. And I said, well, can you take it now? Because I would like to make sure that you have my info in case there's a problem. She said, oh, absolutely. So she puts it all in there and she apologized profusely. But then I left thinking, well, how often does that happen? And so when I mentioned it to a few people, the same thing happened to our producer, Greg Schott, who went to a restaurant also yesterday, same thing they didn't take his contact tracing information either. So now I'm starting to wonder, how often do you think this happens? That's really interesting. I'm just trying to think back on restaurant experiences that I've had. I certainly always remember when it does happen, but have I experienced it not happening? I I honestly don't know. 
You're right, though. This is one of the measures that restaurants are supposed to follow. Yes. It was in the initial order from the provincial health officer, and it was also in the revised one that came out July 23rd. So, you know, if anybody has any questions as to whether or not restaurants are supposed to be doing this, it literally says, you know, section number 25, if in the order of course of business, you collect information from patrons for the purpose of making reservations or seating patrons, you must collect first and last name and telephone number or email address address of at least one member of every party uh, of patrons. Yeah. And you may collect this information from other members of a party, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So this is supposed to be one of the things that restaurants are doing exactly. every single place you go. But obviously it sounds like from your experience and the experience of others, not everyone is doing this. It was. I was disappointed because it was quite clear they were doing everything else. Right, like they had the plexiglass uh, in okay. between tables. They had really spaced the tables out. They were clearly seated. Well, we were seated in a section, and we went early, like because I eat early, um, and so we were there at like five o'clock. So we there wasn't anybody around us, but you could tell they were obviously making that effort to make sure that people were kind of spaced apart. The server was wearing a mask. Like all of the other things were followed, and I just thought, oh, it's disappointing that they didn't do this. And then when I hear a second story. I do have to wonder if restaurants are abiding. I hope they are, because as you just pointed out, they are required to do this. Now, would you say something, Nikki? This was the other argument we were having as well, because oh. <laughs> producer Greg didn't want to say anything. In my party, I was being my my husband was telling me, "Oh, don't say anything. It's okay. Just leave it." They must have just forgotten. And I said, "No, no. Like this is not a an awkward thing." I want them to know who I am in case there's a COVID-19 outbreak here. I want them to call me and tell me if they need to. So would you say something? I respect and appreciate so much that you said something. I, however, am extremely <laughs> passive aggressive. and I, I probably wouldn't say something just knowing myself. I would want to say something. I probably wouldn't though, just because, you know, I would, I would be like your husband. Oh, you know, it's going to be awkward. Oh, I don't want to cause a scene. Said. I don't want to say anything. What if they spit in my food? I don't want to say anything. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I tried to make it like as nice as possible because my point was, please take my information. It wasn't, hey, you guys aren't doing what you're supposed to you be doing. You didn't do this. No, I, yeah. I, what I didn't want to say that. What I said was, could you please take my info just in case you need it, which I thought was a better way of approaching it. Now, on the other side of this, I'm just thinking back to when I went out Friday night, they took our information of, you know, on a, on a form that they had just by hand, they wrote it down. They put down the clipboard that had other people's contact information and the, the host walked away, except all of this was happening on the patio outside where Anybody could have seen that information, you know, snapped a photo of it, just grabbed the clipboard and run away. And I thought, okay, here is a, here's another issue with the contact tracing information that people are taking where, you know, you're leaving it exposed to, you know, anybody who could come right. by and, and take a look at this. So yeah, you know, I think there's definitely a lot of questions being raised about, about this contact tracing information, either, you know, are they taking it or if they do take it, are they handling it and protecting it? But if they take your name and number and they put it on that clipboard, I mean, that you could do that for a table. Do you know what I mean? Like that could be any time. That could not, not just contact tracing. You could line up for Sunday brunch and they would take your name and number and perhaps leave that clipboard sitting there. Mm, that's Yeah, I mean, I guess if we think back to, you know, the pre-pandemic days, if you wanted to leave, you know, you show up to a busy restaurant and they say, look, we can't fit you in right now, yes. but can we grab your name and number and, they and do we'll it all the time. call you in 20 minutes? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, it proves, I think, 
to your point, that restaurants are surely equipped to do this and servers have experience in doing this. So when it comes to not taking that information now, you know, why is there such inconsistencies? This is what I'm wondering too. So I'm going to ask people about this. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Amy. What has been your experience at a restaurant? Have they taken your information as they are required to do, uh, just in case they need to contact you if there is a case of COVID-19 there? Now, they didn't when I went there. Uh, otherwise, they were following all the rules. It was very clear. And so I, wa- I wanted them to have my information just in case. It was not a matter of me kind of wagging my finger saying, you didn't take my information. No, it was not at all. I thought, no, no, I need you to have my information. I don't want to read about a problem here, you know, a couple weeks from now. This is Mornings with Simi. So we heard at the end of last week that there are some serious problems with some massive cost overruns at the Site C construction project in the Peace River region. A lot of that is being blamed on the pandemic. However, they're also facing some structural issues. They're concerned about the ground underneath, uh, particularly the generating area, and they're thinking it might be unstable. It's going to cost a lot of money to fix that. My question with that was, how did they not know this before they started construction? That's what we wanted to talk about. Eric Eberhardt is with us. He's the director of the Geological Engineering Program at UBC. Eric, thank you very much for being here. Good morning. Can you give me an idea of when a a huge construction project is undertaken? Do they not, is it not normal to do an examination of the geological structure underneath what's going to be built? Yes, uh, you know, they they do a detailed investigation through um, a number of of means of observing the ground, but a lot of it is limited to uh, small observations through borehole drilling. And so the samples that they can build up, uh, pull up from depth. Uh, so they, they've been investigating the Site C uh, location for, you know, decades, um, you know, even before the this, the project was uh, given the go-ahead. Right. So how can there be surprises this far along? Does that happen in projects? Uh, you know, it, it, it's very common. It's it's uh, just the nature of the uncertainty when they go forward on these projects. And I think the way I would compare it is uh, if we think about uh, constructing a large building, uh, when we construct a large building, it's all observable. Um, it's materials that we use. It, they're, you know, they're, they're materials that we, we make, the glass, the steel, the concrete. Um, and so everything is, is, is very well defined. When we're dealing with any projects that involve the subsurface, what we see is immediately what's on the surface. But what is, what's immediately on the surface is just the soil cover. What's underneath it is, is the geology, is the rock. And that can change from you know, standing in one location and walking over 10 meters, the geology can change quite drastically. So when you're doing the investigation, you know, you're, you're blind to what is in the subsurface, and, and that's what the inve- you know, they, they do with the drilling. They'll drill mm-hmm. down, bring up a sample, understand the geology from that, drill another location, but you can only drill so many of those holes, and still there's still a lot of uncertainty and unknowns with the subsurface. So it's a, do you, you don't know how it's going to compress until you're starting to put the heavy stuff on there? So, you know, the investigation and what you're learning about the subsurface evolves with the project. And so you start, you know, you know what you know from the geology, from what you do know, and, and you design around that. And you build into your design the means to be able to adapt that as you, as you go through construction and you're learning more, um, you're able to either confirm what your initial uh, understanding was uh, or you have to quickly adapt to it and, and update. And then this is extremely common in, in any type of mm-hmm. project that involves 
the underground, whether it's building a hydroelectric dam or it's excavating um, a tunnel, as, as we will be for the Broadway tunnels uh, in here in Vancouver for the subway, um, or, or, or in designing a mine. Any of the mines that we have in, in the province undergo the same uncertainty when they go into construction, and they have to adapt as they dig into the geology and they, they get to see it, they're able to confirm, uh, or it refutes what they, they thought was right. there, and they have to then design for that. Fascinating. Eric, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. That's Eric Eberhardt, Director of the Geological Engineering Program at UBC, talking about how common it is for geological structure problems to pop up uh, when you're far along on these big projects. And of course, up at Site C, there is nothing bigger than what they're building there. And they also now have big geological structure um, problems there that they are going to be dealing with. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about traveling, in particular, getting on board an airplane. For so many people, and I feel this, uh, it's just not worth it right now. The concerns that you might have, I mean, every day it seems like they are adding more flights to the BC Centre for Disease Control watch list of people who potentially may have been exposed to COVID-19 while on an airplane. But one airline thinks they have got a way to combat that. To talk more about this, we're joined now with our Nikki Wright-Meyer. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, you've heard of Emirate Airlines before, right? I mean, this airline, yeah, they're always ranked like the nicest airline in the world to fly. Luxurious, I believe is the word. Absolutely. And they have a new initiative that they think will lure some travelers. Like many airlines, of course, they've been struggling as well, even despite the fact that they're this well-known luxury airline. They have a new plan that they think is going to instill confidence in travelers, make people want to travel with them. I think it's going to do the exact opposite, actually. (laughs) However, they're offering a new insurance plan, which as soon as you buy a ticket, automatically you buy into this insurance policy. So they're willing to cover $236,000 Canadian for your medical expenses, should you get sick with COVID-19 while traveling with them. They're willing to pay $150 Canadian for 14 days, So you can cover any quarantine costs that may be associated with you traveling with them. And this is the part that I think doesn't instill confidence. They're also willing to pay $2,300 Canadian for your funeral should you die from (laughs) COVID-19 as a result of traveling with them. (laughs) Okay, well, a couple things there. One, obviously, ew, why would they do that? But two, (laughs) they clearly haven't priced a funeral lately because $2,300 is a drop in the bucket going towards a funeral. Yeah, I'm not too sure. I mean, it certainly wouldn't be the nicest funeral. I don't think that would even cover the catering costs for most funerals these days. Yeah. However, they'll still kick you that 2300 bucks. I'm not sure how you go about claiming it necessarily. Yeah. Uh, this is <laughs> weird. This would not Isn't, entice yeah. me to fly Emirates. Be like, you know, we should fly Emirates because if something happens, they will pay for our funeral. I know. This is what I thought was so funny is they're doing it because they want travelers to feel more confident flying with them. But when you throw in the, oh, yeah, just in case anything goes wrong, we'll even cover the cost of your funeral. (laughs) That doesn't exactly make you want to fly with them. It reminds you of the possible risk of flying with them or with any other airline right now. I think that is so true. But I mean, airlines, they're kind of grasping at straws here to get people on board. 
Yeah, they really are. And you know, the other day I was talking to Claire Newell from Travel Best Bets. Of course, we all know Claire. Yes. And she was saying right now, you know, regardless of, of what Emirates is doing, they're not the only ones. You have so many airlines that are offering these really amazing deals right now to tempt travelers. The one thing is, is that the people around me who know me are actually taking advantage of some of the deals that are out there right now because they are flexible. You are not left holding the bag if there's another spike. Um, you, you there's really low deposits. Deposits are sitting at around one thirty, one fifty nine. They're normally three hundred, four hundred, five hundred dollars. And you you can get out of these trips the second the ban is lifted. You're not going to have the deals that you have in place. See, I do wonder about that now. It's so flexible. Even if you book a flight uh, for anywhere, they tell you, oh, yeah, you get a free change on this one. And you think, boy, things changed really quickly for the airline industry. Yeah, it's amazing how flexible the airlines become very quickly when this whole COVID-19 pandemic hit. The customer service, I think, greatly improved for a lot of the airlines who became a little bit desperate. Suddenly they're offering perks that they said they couldn't possibly offer before. Uh, Yeah, I'm not sure if any of this, though, is tempting enough for people to start traveling again. As you heard Claire say, the people in her circle, who are obviously big travelers, they're taking advantage of some of these deals and they're booking because they feel that there's a sense of security. You know, they can they can book a flight if it gets canceled. You know, they feel confident that they'll be able to get their money back because of these deals that the airlines are offering. But, you know, even with that, that Emirates deal, and as much as, you know, uh, it would be a luxury to fly with Emirates, yeah, I don't know. I, I still am not feeling totally confident about flying and I love to travel, but I you just do. don't feel comfortable right now, especially going somewhere international on an airplane. Well, what about the um, Hawaii deal, right? We heard that starting September 1st, Canadian travelers to Hawaii, uh, as long as they have had a negative COVID test within 72 hours of boarding the flight, are welcome to go to Hawaii and they don't have to quarantine when they get there. Is that enough to make you travel? Mm -hmm. Not to the United States of America. I know that Hawaii has been been better with with the cases compared to to the rest of America. Ah, however, the the temptation for me just isn't quite strong enough yet to want to get on an airplane. I mean, I guess on the bright side, you know, if you were to travel there, you wouldn't have to sit in a hotel room for fourteen days. You know, looking out your window at the beach where you wish yeah. you were, you can prove, you know, with that test that you don't have COVID nineteen. Uh, you tested negative for it, and they'll let you, you know, enjoy enjoy the state of Hawaii. When you come back to Canada, though, you still have to do the fourteen day quarantine. So right. you're still that's stuck the rub for two weeks. I had people yeah, who absolutely. emailed me about this and said, you know what, that makes it not worth it. So I still so you're still coming back. So even if you go for two weeks and you come back, you're quarantining for two weeks. Well, there's a month right there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you work from home, okay, maybe it's a little bit easier. Maybe it's a little bit, you know, more doable. Uh, however, if, you know, you have to leave your house for work now, we're talking about a whole other set of issues, which I think is going to continue to deter a lot of people from flying. I don't quite know if the temptation level is high enough yet, but I would be really curious to hear from listeners. 604-331-BUZZ. When you hear about these types of deals, you know anything on the broad spectrum of deals that we've discussed, is it tempting enough for you to want to get back on an airplane again? Yeah, I guess that's one way to do it. Or you could do something like a, a, more and more airlines are doing this. Alaska Airlines actually just announced it this morning is they want, they're going the safety route and they're saying it's absolutely mandatory for every guest ages two and older to wear a mask 
or face covering mm. over their nose and mouth. And they said, no exceptions. If a guest is unwilling or unable to wear a mask, not going to get on one of their airplanes. Have you seen some of these crazy videos that have been circulating around the internet where there's one person on the airplane and they refuse to wear a mask? I don't know. Maybe they've gotten on board and then they take the mask off or whatever. That will also get you banned, by the way. That will get you banned from Alaska Airlines if you do that. Really? If they just take the mask off during the flight? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because these videos are crazy. I mean, you see... Basically, you know, you know the the passengers on the plane are screaming at this person. The person is screaming at everyone else, and then yeah, they get kicked off the plane. But wow, you can actually get banned for life as well, eh? Yeah. So I guess there's two different approaches that airlines are taking. So there's the Emirates way, which is enticing you with free funerals and paying your insurance costs, <laughs> and then there's the other airline way, which is Air, um, Alaska is one airline of several that is doing this, and that is the safety route while you're on board the airplane is masks mandatory for everybody. Like. Which one would make you feel more inclined to get on an airplane, do you think? Well, probably the one that keeps me alive. There you go. That's what <laughs> I, I was really want to take advantage of Emirates' funeral deal, you know? <laughs> That's what I was thinking, too. Well, let's find out what people say. So call our bus line, 604-331-2899. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, normally at this time of year with the kind of beautiful weather we've been having, so many people would be enjoying something like Bard on the Beach. It has been, in years past, an annual summertime tradition. Of course, it got cancelled earlier this year because of the pandemic. However, it is kind of back in a way. So if you love the performing arts, then you should check out Bard Beyond the Beach. This is a new website. It features lots of great content from the performers that you, of course, come to love from the annual Bard on the Beach event that they do, featuring, of course, Christopher Gaze, the founding artistic director of Bard, who spoke to our Nikki Reitmeyer about this new online initiative. I guess it began with the new branding that we took on from Carter Hale who did our uh, branding, rebranding a couple of years ago, uh, just to show uh, uh, where we are now, not in the tent this summer. We're virtual, like so many others. And uh, we put together what we think is uh, some really compelling and interesting programming for all those people that grieve the loss of uh, so much of the arts, in this case, part on the beach this summer, so they can engage with us. And the content that's available online, it seems to go beyond just Shakespeare's performances. There's even videos up there about the history of Stanley Park. That's right. Uh, one of my colleagues, Max Forsyth, is doing a wonderful safari uh, around town. All the uh, oddities and uh, curious things that people never knew, I never knew a lot of them, of the way our city has linked to the Bard or Bards in general, so it's informative and it's fun. It's a nice, easy four or five minutes watch, and you get all this off uh, the Bard on the Beach webpage. I think that's something that's been really interesting about the pandemic is we're not taking some experiences for granted anymore. Maybe that means we're exploring our own backyard a bit more than we did previously, or maybe that means we have a new appreciation for the performing arts. Yes, yes. That's right. And I think also um, people are just missing it uh, so much. Uh, they'll do anything to, uh, to get involved and are yearning for it all to be back. I mean, my, one's heart breaks for the, the art and cultural entities around the world 
who are trying to uh, hold it together financially as this pandemic is, has taken hold. So it, it's a challenge. But fortunately, uh, we're up for it. The arts will survive. We will survive. It's just going to be a, a fight and a battle. But uh, nevertheless, it's a battle we shall win. There's one particular quote that you've used for the Bard Beyond the Beach website by William Shakespeare, and that is, hearts remote, yet not asunder. Can you tell me what that means to you? Yeah, so um, we're parted. Our hearts are joined together. Our passion is joined together uh, with all the people that love God. Although we're sad, you're sad, uh, that's... Uh, we're apart, we hold hands across this, uh, this gulf, and we won't forget you, and uh, we very much hope that uh, you won't forget us. One more question for you before I let you go. How are you doing? How is Christopher Gaze? Well, that's very kind of you to ask. I, you know, I'm fine. It, it's, uh, I think for the first three months or so of it all, I was I guess you could use the word uh, frustrated or even I'm not an angry person, uh, but I think there was a semblance of that because for over three decades I've been performing or produce, producing uh, in Vanier on, on English Bay and now uh, not. And so I, I've settled into it now, though, because we have this virtual program, which we're very excited about. And there's a lot more than that. It's both educational, it's entertaining, it's informative, it's everything we can do with engage with those that love us. So uh, I'm all right. I'm, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm as fine as you are. We're all frustrated. We wish that life could be as it was, but it's not. So we take a deep breath and go on. Ah, well, thank you so much. Wishing you the absolute best, and I look forward to continuing to check Bard Beyond the Beach to see what new content appears online. Thank you so much. Just go to our webpage. You can find out all about it. But thanks for your interest, and hello to uh, all the Bard lovers, uh, both here and uh, hither and beyond. Hither and beyond. Of course, that was Christopher Gaze, the founding artistic director of Bard on the Beach. So if you are missing the content that you would normally get from Bard, they have a little something for you. It's called Bard Beyond the Beach, and you can check that out online. They've got all sorts of great content for you to look at there. This is Mornings with Simi been a tough six months for so many industries, but in particular, people who love to enjoy live music. It's been devastating, right? Most live concerts canceled, artists, venues just struggling to survive at this point. Well, the Mary Winspear Center in Sydney over on Vancouver Island is trying to get creative. They're hoping that their approach could potentially serve as a roadmap for other venues in the same position. They're actually bringing back some live entertainment. We're going to find out how they are doing that. So Executive Director Brad Edgett joins us now for more on this. Good morning, Brad. Good morning. So tell me a bit about what you're doing. How do you think you can pull this off? (laughs) Well, uh, it's been a lot of work over the last couple of months to see if there is a way that we could do it working with all of the artists, all of the agents, uh, working with ActSafe, with WorkSafe as well, and of course following the guidelines of the Provincial Health Authority. We're in a fortunate situation where we have a, a large convertible space, a large hall space that we call the Boating Hall, which is eight 
thousand square feet. And so we're able to follow uh, the provincial health guidelines with providing a minimum of two meter space between uh, all the tables, uh, the artists, uh, all my technicians. And so I've also been working with Decorate Victoria uh, to create an intimate uh, looking space in an 8,000 square foot hall and you've only got 50 people in there it almost seems cavernous but we've been able to close it off with uh with being able to put some decorations in there we built a specific stage for the artists um some ceiling treatments and you know tried to make it a really beautiful intimate space we had our first show on july 16th through 19th with uh, country artist aaron perchett and the feedback was fantastic. You know, the artists had a wonderful time. Uh, all the patrons had a, a very good time. And they were all safe. Right. And at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. But how do you make it financially worthwhile, Brad, to have 50 people in there? Like, what do you have to charge for a ticket? So the tickets actually have been uh, very close to what we would normally charge for a single show. Um, but that's been work on our part, work on the agent's part, and work on the artist's part. We've all had to um, bend our fees a little bit and, and, and try to pull this off. But at the end of the day, you know, we've been able to take advantage of some of the, uh, the government programs. And so I'm happy to pass some of that savings on to our patrons and the artists as well. And none of us are doing much right now anyway. So, um, you know, it, the artists are, are receiving it very well because they're, they're getting paid as well. So do you see this continuing as you move forward? Well, we right now I have uh, 10 artists that have agreed to, to do this series at, at four nights. So that's 40 shows uh, from now until mid-November. Uh, and I'm working with a couple of artists right now to see if I can put something together for, for Christmas time. So, you know, really, we, we started July 16. And if we can go till the middle of December, uh, you know, it'll, it'll be close to 50 nights that the, the uh, center will be in operation. Okay, so that's something then. So what is your advice then to other venues like yours uh, to who might be thinking of a way to do this? Well, my uh, theater manager, Philip Sutton, sits on the BCTC uh, task force for reopening due to COVID. And we've been really open about trying to share what works and what doesn't in this scenario. Because I think for, for, for all of us, the arts and culture is such a huge part of uh you know, our way of life, but also there's a, a huge social economic benefit with, with arts and culture for mental health and, and things like that. So, you know, it's in our interest, uh, you know, from a provincial standpoint to, to educate and help and see if we can mm-hmm. uh, be creative and open other venues. All right. So what's your website then, Brad, in case people are like, I want to go to one of these shows? Yeah, you're welcome to, to come visit us at www.marywinspear.ca. Um, and uh, it'll, you'll see the list of lineup that we have. Okay, we'll check it out. Brad, thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. That's Brad Edgett. He's the executive director of the Mary Winspear Center. It's in Sydney on Vancouver Island. They think they have cracked this. They think for now they've found a way to host some shows, max 50 people, uh, but they have found a way to make it seem more intimate, to make it worthwhile for the artists and for the for the patrons who are there. And they said they've got a list of shows, something like 40, 50 shows between now and the beginning of December of different artists who are pitching in on this. So you know what? Check out their website. Maybe it's worth the trip over to the island to check out what it is that they've got there. And hey, it's a night out, right? And a lot of people would like a night out.